Undergradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Mark Ambrosio. I'm your host, Anam Anjum. Anam, do you use public libraries at all? Growing up, I did, but uh, recently, no, I have not. That's understandable. And personally, I use the uh, London Central Library a fair bit, uh, but we have with us someone today who can talk to us about community engagement with the local public library and especially about different how different ethnic groups uh, relate to the local public library. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, so my name is Amber Matthews and I am a fifth year doctoral candidate in the Faculty of Information and Media Studies. Welcome, Amber. Um, so you mentioned that you're a fifth year PhD student here in the Faculty of Information and Media Studies and specifically you're doing library and information science. I was wondering perhaps if you don't, if you wouldn't mind backing that out a little bit and maybe telling us about your academic journey. Before you came here to Western, uh, where did you do your undergraduate and your master's, if you don't mind? Sure. So I've been at Western forever. Um, I did my undergraduate at uh, Huron University College a long time ago in the Center for Global Studies. Uh, from there, I went to Humber College in Toronto and did a postgraduate in uh, fundraising and volunteer management. And I worked for uh, almost 10 years in the nonprofit sector. And then um, approaching my 40th birthday, I was uh, approaching burnout and um, wanted a change. And so I came back to Western for my master's degree in library and information science um, and decided to stay for one more. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh my gosh, the fact that you stayed on from your master's and went into your PhD. Um, could you talk about your research for your master's and PhD? Sure. So the uh, MLIS, Master's of Library and Information Science, it's a professional master's program. So um, I'd actually hadn't come to Western intending to stay for my PhD. I uh, really envisioned that I would just get the library credentials and go out into the world. Um, but I had noticed when I got to the MLIS that there was um, a real disconnect in librarianship between the equity principles that they stated and how those were appearing in the research. And so I approached one of my uh, faculty members to, to kind of talk about it because I had come from oh, almost 10 years working with community. Yeah. And so I knew that communities were really impacted by a lot of these issues. And it seemed to me that libraries were centrally located and ought to be um, having these conversations, but they weren't. And right. so I decided that perhaps, you know, maybe it wasn't the right move for me to go into librarianship directly and that I would create the research that I wanted to see. That's so impressive. It's very proactive of you to go out and actually want to make the change that you wanted to see. Um, so that's where you started. And could you tell us about your research specifically and what your PhD is about? Sure. So I, I mean, the long title is that it's, uh, what is the title? <laughs> uh, Advancing Anti-Racism for Black Youth in Canadian Public Libraries. And so the project emerged from that first term course that I had took. And um, I went looking for research. I had previously, like many moons ago, worked with black youth um, in Belize here in Canada. And um, so it was an area of interest that I had. And I was interested in how, how was this community that I knew reflected in the research. 
and I like shockingly discovered that there had actually never been a study in Canada connect, uh, conducted on uh, black youth experiences or needs in public libraries. And then wow. I just thought like, this is like uh, shameful and yeah. shocking. And mm-hmm. so that became the focus of my research um, and my PhD was to conduct that. That It's a small study, right? Um, but it's a community-based study, um, which means that I, um, I've i been working closely with members of the black community here. I mean, this is radio, so yeah. I'll be honest, like I'm a white woman. Yeah. Um, but um, I've been involved in racial justice and equity work in London for a really long time, uh, going on like 20, 25 years. And so right. a benefit of that was that I had a lot of really deep connections to community here that um, I had people that had you know, were from that community that knew me well and were, you know, willing to work with me on developing the project. So I, of course, it's my PhD, right? It's my work. Um, But at the same time, I have worked from a community consultation model. So every step of the way from research design to research implementation, I have um, worked with members of the community to ensure, one, that it's something that is do they want this research? Does it reflect their experiences? And, um, you know, is it consistent with their community goals? That's amazing. That's wow. I love that. Oh my gosh. It's good that you went and saw like where the inequities were and actually wanted to relate to them, even though you are a white woman. Mm -hmm. That is very interesting. You mentioned like a lot of us, when we're doing PhDs, we find a gap, a hole in the academic research there's a space on the shelf you know in the, in the library <laughs> and there's you know a, a, some missing literature we think to ourselves well you know somebody needs to fill this void and we humbly put ourselves forward to do some research and maybe help fill that void or at least describe what the void is and you mentioned that some of this came out of your a first term class was this first term in your PhD or first term in the MLIS degree? MLIS. So, and, and can you describe that class? So it was called Information Sources and Services, and it's sort of the the first introduction to how we provide information to communities. And so I thought it was really interesting that we actually had no information that um, was looking at or, or considering how we might deliver information as a tangible item. like to different groups um, differently, right? It was sort of the library user was conceptualized as like like just a homogenized user. Um, And my experience in the community was like, that's not, uh, people don't arrive at the library doors without previous experiences and unique needs. And so um, in that class, I, had spoken with the faculty and decided, you know, I started to look at that gap that you talked about. Um, and I wrote about that gap um, in a library journal here in Canada uh, and approached it from a critical race perspective. Like, how can we read this as this failure to appreciate racial differences could be a indication of racism? I find it very interesting. Um, you mentioned several t- terms such as community and group and the public library. I'm intrigued by the word community here because when you think of a public library, you think, so for example, one public library system, there's the central library downtown and there's neighborhood libraries 
within a specific community. But I think when I'm using the word community in that sense, I'm speaking to a physical area or part of the city. So for example, in Byron, there's the Byron branch of the London Public Library. And you're using uh, the word community, I feel, in a much more dynamic way. You're speaking to the idea of groups within society. And I'm wondering if you can unpack that a little bit. Well, I think we all have our own, you know, identity claims to community, right? Like, I'm a member of the Western community. Yeah. You know, I'm a member of the community that I physically reside in. You know, um, And I think for, you know, white-identified or socialized white people, we don't necessarily appreciate that there are different experiences to that white experience that form a solidarity, mm -hmm. um, if only by visual, yeah. you know, identification, right? And so, and that, you know, there's been a lot of learning in that for me as well, because one of the key things that I've learned from my research is that there is no homogenous black identity, right? They're as diverse a community as um, any white community here. Um, they are united by and large in collective challenges um, and collective experiences that are felt across the social system in Canada and elsewhere. Um, but I think there is that sense of community. I mean, that's self-identified, right? So one of the partners that I've worked on is the Black Community Center right. here in London. So that, you know, they've identified that, that that's a community to which they want to call themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And going, so just talking about this community and doing research in a community where a lot of the times, like, it can be difficult going into a different community, doing research on them for, like, five years, right? What were some significant obstacles that you anticipated and what were the ones that you actually faced? Um, I guess the biggest obstacle was time, right? right. Um, you don't have a lot of time in a PhD to build relationships, but this was a heavily relationship-dependent project. And so I spent, you know, the first year after getting my ethics approval of just building relationships, you know, sending emails and asking people to go for coffee, um, just going to events in that community and talking to people and... Um, creating those type of relationships where there was a trust, right? Yeah. Um, historically, black communities have not always had a positive experience in research. Yeah. And so, and there's also, it's a project which it's a difficult one to say, demonstrate the benefit immediately to someone, right? right? Yeah. Like, can you sit down and talk to me about your experience at the public library? Well, I don't go to the public library. Well, that's great information, <laughs> yeah. right? But why is that good for them, right? Um, and so getting to know people and sharing what my motives were mm -hmm. and what my personal, you know, commitment to the project was. So it took longer. Um, Conducting a community-based study is not easy within the uh, university ethics framework. So there were, um, for example, requests by the community that required multiple iterations of my ethics approval because when you're, you know, conducting community-based research, yeah. it's in partnership with them. And so I couldn't necessarily anticipate all of the different um, requests that would be made. So one community group said, can you come make a public presentation? So that required another application. Wow. Um, of course, I did a lot of this research over COVID. So that was something I didn't anticipate. Um, it required changing here and there. And um, 
I think those were, you know, recruiting participants were slow going at first. Yeah. Um, I got there in the end, so it was a lot of perseverance. Right. So do you think recruitment was hard because of the trust factor and like building the lack of um, relationships there is with the, the black community often? Or is this specific to London? Do you think that the relationships to the black community are not as um, strong? Or is this just, do you think, a common thing? I think people are just busy. Yeah, fair. You know, like when you're a family and you've got like a job and a couple kids or... Because I was interested in youth that were 13 to 24 or their parents and caregivers. So um, academic research is not necessarily on the high priority list for a busy family. Um, So that was definitely something that came down to, again, relationship building, right? Um, And a lot of reciprocal you know, supporting their organization, supporting their work, um, and then receiving that back, you know, yeah, that was a big challenge. I think, you know, another one was just demonstrating, like I said before, when it's a community that's not necessarily engaging a lot in the public library, it's difficult to imagine what, what you would have to say. And so I would speak with people a lot when they would say, well, I don't really, you know, I don't go to the library or I don't use the library. Um, And I would ask them, well, do you know, did you go to this program? Do you go Mm -hmm. to, you know, another community organization? Yeah. And then I, you know, I'd like to know why you went there instead. Yeah. You spoke, Amber, about ethics approval. You spoke about community engaged research. The benefit of our listeners, I'm wondering if you just take it back a little bit and maybe tell us about, I, so it sounds like it's very qualitative research, and maybe tell us about, did it involve re- interviews and how many interviews and maybe some of that? Sure. So, uh, yeah, it was a qualitative study. Um, it was uh, semi-structured interviews, which I approached from a narrative inquiry uh, perspective, which is really just to say I wanted to understand stories of people's engagement, families' engagement with public libraries and community-based spaces. Um, I didn't ask, you know, specific, tell me about, (laughs) you know, the last time you went to the library. Um, I was interested in the motivations that, um, you know, what, you know, do you remember what your, you know, first experience Mm -hmm. was? What were those feelings like? Um, And to try to connect those to uh, later decisions and so it was just a lot of storytelling um, and so I conducted interviews with parents and youth and with youth I did something called a personal meeting map which was an arts based tool um, that was a it ended up being a really powerful aspect of the study. Um, the v- images are really visually appealing. Um, and they're actually a s- verification tool um, because I was fundamentally, a lot of them are kids, right? Yeah. And I was asking them about adult issues and I was giving them language and terms, you know, um, although, you know, they may have had these experiences, they may not use them in the terms that, you know, my academic mind does. And right. so, Uh, I had them do something similar to a concept map or a meaning map that we did in school where I asked them to, I just gave them two pieces of paper and some markers and I asked them to um, visualize their thoughts, experiences and feelings in community spaces and in public library spaces. Uh, And so that was a tool that allowed them to 
it was age appropriate, first mm-hmm. of all. Some of my participants were as young as 13 years old, so the question and answer may not have solicited the information, um, but they were able to to draw, or some of them drew, you know, pictures, others drew, you know, simple concept maps. Yeah, no, um, my sister's 13 years old, so if I asked her any academic research question, I'm sure she's not really going to understand. Um, so the concept map map idea is amazing. What did you find, like, what were your re- like results from this, these concept maps, and honestly, in your overall study? So I guess I'll talk about the study first. Sure. So the... I mean, the interesting aspect of it that I found was that I had, I think, gone in with a little bit of a pessimistic attitude, right? I expected that, um, and I laugh about this now, mm-hmm. right? But it, it demonstrates the importance of keeping an open mind to your research, right? So I had started this research um, in 2020, which was, of course, the summer that we all remember of Black Lives Matter and anti-Black racism right. becoming, you know, the buzzword and um, everybody suddenly became aware of systemic racism and I had expected truthfully based on that atmosphere and that kind of the tones from those times that the libraries were going to be cast in similar light Mm -hmm. you know we heard horrific stories about education institutions and, and adjacent social services and what I found was that yes there are structural barriers, but libraries are also a safe and welcoming place that many of the youth have really positive memories of public libraries. It's like a, some of them described it like, you know, it reminds them of parental figures or, you know, Aww. they shared really heartwarming stories. That's really nice. My grandpa used to take me there when I was a kid and, um, you know, that type of really uh influential memories right that had stuck with them and so regardless of whether you know they felt like they could get good you know service which was um tailored to them now they still had that soft spot in their heart which was really you know positive to hear um and so i mean that was you know a main finding um a second you know was that yes that that positive experience occurred but representation is really lacking right and that it means something you know when a black young person goes into a space and doesn't um see other black people there that there are messages that are conveyed by that um and so you know some of the quotes you know were heartbreaking to say the least you know just saying you know uh i get followed when I'm there or you know my friends and I come in and the security guard looks at us and and those are you know simple fixes right Right. with some more cultural sensitivity training Um, but others were more structural right in the sense that they didn't find that there were materials that were available for them Uh, parents didn't necessarily actually I think all of the parents in my study purchase materials for their child at the end off the internet um the library was not identified as a place where they could find information and so it's more representation is more significant than materials it's you know or bodies and spaces right it's um how does the library reflect their culture right and and a feeling in some sense of a how would i describe it uh I don't want to say resentment. It's uh, 
a distaste for the performative aspect of, of inclusion that they often see. So one of the research participants spoke about her public library, you know, in her community and, you know, how everybody's so excited about black community in February, right? And I think she said like, woohoo, it's Black History Month and then it's silence for yeah. 11 more months. And yeah. so that desire to be represented at all times in the library. And, you know, one of the main reasons why people are pursuing youth engagement outside of public libraries is, you know, one, that representation, um, the sense of belonging, sense of welcomeness, um, but also just a connections to community. And so it's sort of a chicken or the egg, right? So the community is not seen or not seeing themselves there. And so they're not engaging, you know, with the with the library as a place that, you know, would be for them. Right. So representation matters in the materials that are provided within the library, but also the people that are working there. Um, So do you mean like if people if this community does not have many black individuals already, um, do you think representation matters in the people that work there? Like, do you think like what could be not an easy fix, but could be something that libraries could do when employing people to help with this? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, right? Like, what is the solution? Is it, you know, um, purely statistical, right? Do we have, you know, this amount of population, you know, correlated to this amount of staff? Truthfully, I didn't, I don't have the answer for that, right? right? I can, you know, one of the beautiful parts about working at the Black Community Center here is that they've developed their own public library, right? And so this is a really, you know, unique community led partnership with the London Public Library, which, so that came about because the Black Community Center and members there felt like they didn't have the materials that represented them at the library. And the library, you know, conducted an audit, you know, and found that in fact, their materials did not represent the the size of the London community. And so they they worked together on uh, purchasing materials. and the library now exists within the community center, right? And so I, I think we, from an anti-racist perspective, um, the solutions can be broader and um, right. more imaginative than what we've currently created, right? Um, and I don't think it needs to be uh, a one-size-fits-all approach, right? Like we might find that we have a need for that uh, type of library in one community, um, but another may be better served in a different way. I find the idea of looking at community centers and libraries and some comparison to be very interesting because I think when libraries are at their best, they will be community centers that are very welcoming to people and that people feel comfortable going into and engaging with other people in, in the community. I want to step back a little bit, though, because I was intrigued. You spoke about some of the ethics ethics approval you had to get, and for uh, anyone in the social sciences will know that getting ethics approval for working with humans can be very, as controversial as working with animals is, getting ethics approval for working with humans, like doing interview (laughs) work, can be very laborious, and sounds like you had to get multiple, you had to keep going back uh, to get further specifications, and you also talked about the idea of patience, like it took time to find research participants. I'm intrigued by the idea of patience, whether it is patience for ethics approval or patients for finding research participants. And I wonder if you could speak to that idea. Like it's it's not a quick process. And I wonder if you could speak to the idea of taking your time and doing research slowly. 
Yeah, and I think like any community-based project or human-based project, you have to be able to let go of control, right? Um, which is difficult, I think, for academic researchers, right? Like when I am setting the pace, um, I'm happiest because I, you know, I can control how much, you know, what work is going to be done. Um, yeah, I mean, it it was a very time intensive process um, that required a lot of stop and go, right? Like hurry up and wait, get the uh, amendment in for the ethics approval and then, you know, wait. I mean, from, you know, th these projects thankfully have multiple moving parts, right? And so I never stopped, you know, working on the community building aspect of it that was built in throughout it. Um, if I wasn't able to conduct interviews, you know, I was still working on various recruitment strategies. Yeah, you spoke about community building and you also spoke about how this is not your first iteration here at Western. Amber Matthews has been here before and, uh, <laughs> and I can relate. And I'm wondering, like, to what extent do you relate, like bracketing your research for a moment, like personally, how do you feel as a member of the Western and London communities? And are there times where you need to get out of the academic space? And how does that work? Yeah, I mean, having been here a few times, um, this PhD, I, I will say I haven't actually felt much like I'm part of the Western space. I've um, truthfully done most of the PhD from my bedroom, right, <laughs> through the pandemic. Right, yeah. You know, I think the best thing that I brought to this degree was the ability to design community projects, right, which I had learned um, in my previous work um, and came in with a idea of how to how to do this. I don't know. I don't know that I'm sure there are, but you know, I know that certainly we didn't receive training in um, community yeah. building or you know how to how to build relationships in a project. Right. Uh, what advice would you give to aspiring researchers or students interesting in studying topics related to equity, diversity, and inclusivity? Pick a topic you love because you're going to be yeah. with it for a really long time. Um, you have to be really committed to the people or the project um, and the outcome because it, it gets hard at times no matter how much you love the project it there's peaks and valleys in any doctoral project or any research project and um, it's the love of the project the love of um, the outcome that you're working towards that'll carry you through those valleys well pick a topic you love I think is very sound advice for the benefit of listeners, a link to a website with Amber's research can be found in the episode description for those who are interested in learning more. And I encourage you to go there. Thank you very much, Amber. It's a real pleasure to have you and another LIS PhD student here with us. Thank you so much. And this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Anam Anjum, and my co-host was Mark Ambragio. We've been speaking with Amber Matthews, and this episode was produced by Scott Walters. If you would like to be involved with the show and get in contact with us, email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on the Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.